0: joining me on the show today are two very special guests we have american actress and musical theater star jennifer blake who talks about her most recent project that she also created mindy mccready the musical and then john hewitt the australian director talks about his remake of the iconic 80s australian film turkey shoot all that and more so stay tuned Welcome to Benjamin Mann McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, and as I said, joining on the show today are two very special guests. First up, I had to talk to Jennifer Blake about her project, MacReady The Musical. It's a musical that details the life of country star Mindy McCready, and uh, that's just finished a very successful run in LA, and she talks about the development process as well as the LA season. And then I interviewed John Hewitt. Now, John has just remade the iconic Australian film, Turkey Shoot, and he talks about remaking that in uh, in 15 days. So, a very impressive shooting schedule there. So, two very exciting interviews, and uh, then, of course, we I had some movie reviews and DVD reviews, thanks to the fantastic supporters of this show. So, now, here's my interview with Jennifer Blake. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, who or what inspired you to become an actress?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I have been doing this for as long as I can remember, since I was about six years old. But I, I guess if I, you know, it'd have to be a mix between my grandmom and my mom, just always having music around in the house. So there was a bit of performance on their part. And then combined with teachers I had at a young age, probably, when I started dancing, there was always performance going on in my life.
0: Wonderful. Now, when you first decided to become an actress for a living, did you have an idea of what area you mainly wanted to work in, TV, film, or theatre?
1: Originally, it was uh, theatre, and specifically musical theatre. I mean, it was that for years and years, and I went and studied at Tisch, you know, NYU for that one summer in high school. I got accepted into their program and then went on to the Boston Conservatory for Musical Theatre, so It was very much a focus for a long time.
0: And now that you've had the opportunity to work in all those mediums, do you have a preference?
1: You know, I really love, I love working in TV um, a lot. Uh, It's faster paced than film. I mean, I'm an actor, so of course I'm open to everything, but uh, my first love will always be musical (laughs) theatre. That's where I feel at home.
0: Now, I know in my opinion, I think musical theatre is the hardest of uh, I suppose, the industries you can work in within acting, but which do you find the hardest?
1: Hmm. The hardest. I guess there's different levels of it, but um, film can be a little bit more intimidating in a way. I think just because um, you show up on set and um, you might be plopped in after everybody's gotten to know each other for a bit. And you're sort of like the new kid at school, you know, after everybody's bonded. Um, And so that part can be hard sometimes Mm -hmm. (laughs) to jump in.
0: Definitely. Now, can you take us through your career journey from, I suppose, your training to today?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. um, So I grew up in Alabama, specifically Montgomery. And when I look back, I think, wow, I really lucked out with the timing of when I was there because I went to magnet school, which is, it's a public school, but you audition and it's based on grades and, and based on interviews and all kinds of stuff like that. And they keep you really focused. And I was a dance major then, so I was like 13 and was also doing, um, the main stage productions like I was the lead in the main stage of Annie Get Your Gun and stuff from a really young age and I remember myself at 13 and I'm pretty much the same like that I was I was so serious and just so focused um yeah and then from there I went to performing arts high school and also performed at Alabama Shakespeare Festival when I was a senior in high school which was a huge deal at the time um it's one of the few Shakespeare festivals in the country so I was in a production of The Crucible there. And um, I, like I said, I was always in a dance company as well. Um, and from there, let's see, I went to performing arts high school, then Tish summer program, then the Boston Conservatory. So I'm a big fan of training. I definitely am on this side of, yeah, go train.
0: And do you still sure. train today as a professional?
1: I do, uh, but I don't as consistently as I did. Um when I first moved to LA cause I didn't know anyone when I moved here from New York. Uh, I lived in New York city and worked, um, in theater and television and a bit of film, um, for about seven and a half years and moved here after I worked with a director Frank Oz who kind of, you know, it felt like now or never, um, to kind of try it out and see, cause I knew that I wanted to do something with, uh, Film and TV, but uh, but yeah, anyway, to answer your question, I do on occasion still go to Stan Kirsch, who's fantastic, and Robert DeVonzo, who's also great, John Swanbeck, they're all um, really, really inspiring and honest uh, acting coaches that I'll go to from time to time.
0: Wonderful. Now, do you think with training, honesty is the best method to train actors? Because I always hear a couple of different views on this. Some people like to be, I suppose, spoken down to or, or um, encouraged more than talked honestly to. What do you think you know, works better?
1: That's a good, that's a good question um, because you get so used to, I think, if, especially if you go to an intensive conservatory training, a lot of times their methods can be to break you and before they make you, I don't, you know, or you're broken down, your spirit's a bit broken down and you get used to that. At such a young age, you're used to being in school and used to sort of being, you know, no, you're wrong. That can't possibly be right. You know, you get used to it. Um, and then it really kind of is debilitating, um, as a creative person. (laughs) So, uh, you kind of get broken a bit, but, I find a little bit of value in that in a way, too, which might sound crazy or twisted. But um, coming from a dance background, anybody that has ever been in a dance company ever will know, especially ballet, that headmistresses and, you know, the artistic directors of a company can be very, very harsh and unforgiving individual.
0: Mm, No, I I completely understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I come from that, like, ingrained in me, like, to be kind of yelled at until you're better so that was sort of like a weird like it was um acceptable it was completely acceptable you know that the the headmistress of our company you know would be like what are you doing that's crap do it over do it over and you know completely humiliate you but everybody at some point would go through that so it's sort of like a, a weird <laughs> it's not so funny to talk about all out loud but yeah um a bonding experience in a way. Cause you're like, okay, no, you need to push yourself. You need to work harder. Like that's acceptable. It's unacceptable to be lazy or wrong or whatever. But I think once you get older it translates into acting, you know, being fearful is actually the opposite of how you need to feel. And I, that's why I've stayed with those, those three um, coaches that I mentioned, because they say how, what crap it is, you know, to, to scare to scare actors, to scare students, to intimidate. They're like, no, we're, we're all on the same page here. I'm not here to scare you. This is not a therapy session.
0: <laughs> certainly an interesting view. And like I can see, I can see, yeah, you're <laughs> certainly in a lot of that. Now, I think I kind of interrupted where you were in your career journey. So you just finished training, if you want to take us from there to now.
1: Yes, from the Boston Conservatory, We had a showcase, which is very common, you know, your senior year to work most of the year on what you're going to perform in the showcase in New York in in an off-Broadway theater in Midtown. And we were completely involved in the business side of it as well. You know, learning the names of the agents, the agencies, managers, heads of TV at the time, you know, um, and networks like who were going to come. So, I mean, that was like the pinnacle and everything because I knew I wanted to move to New York upon graduation. So we worked on that and I got an agent straight away and moved right after graduation. A couple months after I graduated, moved to New York and was working with her and, um, for a long time and also still every now and then taking classes at Atlantic theater company off and on like different workshops, um, and dance classes and whatnot. Um, yeah, and as far as like this is specifically training, is I, that
0: yeah? I mean, you can you can take it wherever. You can talk about the shows you've done as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then like honestly, I learned a lot. Um, I got my first professional job out of college was at an off-Broadway show called The Donkey Show that ran for a few years. It was very successful. I was in the original cast, and it was just like being shot out of a cannon. You know, it's it, it was. Um, a learning, you know, on the job learning type of experience too, so
0: Well, as you've done so much training did you find it, I suppose was, did that prepare you enough to be thrown in at the deep end as so many theatre productions can do?
1: Yeah, totally I think so, yeah Um, The thing that we weren't as prepared with would be the business side you know, all in all, and I've talked to a lot of like friends or acquaintances about that too, that they don't really, they They kind of skip that, (laughs) in school because there is so much focus on the craft um, and, and and being better at that. But the business side, you know, and how to go about getting your own apartment and things like that when you're 20, you know, whenever you graduate. Um, and how to have a job and still negotiate with your agent about, like, I need to make money, but <laughs> I need to be going on auditions or, you know, just trying to figure that out on your own, basically, when you're 19 or 20. That was trickier I you know and anything else so I was on stage or auditioning or whatever I was fine <laughs> but the other stuff the grow, adult stuff was you know as I say like dealing with that was a bit more like hmm, how do I how do I do this and not make a total mess of it
0: well I suppose you must have conquered that now because you've co-created your own musical about Mindy McCready and that opened on yeah. May the 8th and in, uh, in LA and it's playing till June 12 when did this idea come to you
1: Last Thanksgiving, I met a friend of mine for coffee because I was going to ask him for advice on um, basically a a previous uh, production web series that I was involved with and just saying like things had not turned out as well as I'd hoped for that project Um, and kind of going, you know, just asking for professional advice, throwing him ideas. I said, I really miss singing. I miss doing my own, I want to do my own thing to not really have anybody to answer to except for myself and for the audience, you know, and, um, I miss country and he goes, do you, have you, um, ever heard that you look a lot like Mindy McCready? <laughs> and I said, I've, I have been told that before, but, and I, and he's like, well, do, do you know her music? He didn't really know her stuff. And we literally that day over coffee, we were there for about four or five hours and Um, started just learning, wow, this, this is a story to be told that a lot of people probably don't know. And then, you know, came home that night and just was up until two or three, just researching like crazy. And then every day since basically, (laughs) uh, I've just, I had been researching and, and focusing and learning all her catalog of music and, um, you know, focusing on the aspects of her life from 15 to 37 and, um, so yeah, so we cast the show, uh, which also was a huge process. I feel super lucky we found the guys that we did. Um, but yeah, that was the beginning
2: mm-hmm. of
1: that, how that came together.
0: <laughs> now with developing a show, that's always a complex process and it differs for every production. Can you take us through the, I the, the rough basis of how you developed it from was the research to now that you're on stage?
1: Yeah, a lot of research. Um, really important to like have really good communication with your collaborator and feel safe with like throwing back and forth ideas that may or may not be terrible or may or may not be fantastic. Um, so that that I feel like is is super important to have that 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 grounding and that basis with that person. Because you can go, okay, we're on the same page. Um, What does this look like? I imagine it to look like this. What do you imagine? Oh, okay, I do too. So we had a lot of synchronicities and we were kind of like having the same vision. So we went from there and trying to streamline. Because if you think of kind of like any biopics, like Ray or Walk the Line, you know, it's similar how they're based on real people who... Are, are no longer with us who passed away, but they have this catalog of songs that people know and they have huge fans, you know, it was similar. So we're looking at that and going, I loved walk the line. You know, that would, that was I'm like, how did they do that? They chose certain parts of Johnny Cash's life. And so in finding so much information and research, that's the step two, I would say is going, Which story do we want to tell? Like, what's popping up at us? Because that's a lot. From being a 15-year-old girl to being 37, that's a lot, um, a ground to cover. Mm -hmm. So from that, alongside her catalog of songs, going, which songs do we want to pick and choose and do? and that's a whole process and it really is I think about being obsessed because <laughs> that was our like that was my number one priority in my life um and still is now basically I mean it's still on its beat but it's still um very much my focus but going which do we throw this story in or do we get that you know and just going through the script and and crossing things out and streamlining and then Seeing, seeing the through lines, seeing, you know, which songs, and then um, the next process is casting. And that was a whole big process for sure. Um, and really not wanting to settle, you know, on the cast. Because to me, casting is everything. Mm. It really is. It's and the hardest part go, of the show. Oh, my gosh. And you don't want to rush and go, but I just want to get it on its feet. Like, because we're on our own timetable when you create your own stuff. You're basically on your own timetable you know so you go I really don't want to settle this guy's kind of right but he's not really right you know so that was also a big learning thing <laughs> um let's see and then of course meeting one-on-one with the musical director and, and figuring out how to kind of uh reimagine each of her songs um and put it into a 2015 sound in a personal sound as opposed to like 1990s nashville sheen big studio sounding album you know this was going to be stripped down couple guitars piano harmonica uh percussion you know just completely different so that was that was a lot and then finding the space in la we knew the type of space we wanted um and then you know you go from there with with um, administrative stuff of just seeing when is this available? Um, when can we get the cast in line? Yeah. Mm, mm. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do have a question, I suppose, this is more me being interested with, with the copyright around her songs and I suppose her life to an extent, how did you get the rights to that? Or how did you manage that?
1: You know, with, I mean, it's public domain um, with the story of a person's life. I mean, you can find so much, she did so much press, obviously, when she was a, a big star, um, there's so many interviews. There's you know so much out there for research, public domain to tell the story about her life. And this is truly a tribute to her. And I've become so protective of her and her story. And um, we've reimagined all the songs. Like we still, she, it ha- she didn't write any of the songs that that we have in the show. She performed them, but she did not write them. So we've met with a couple of the writers we've talked to, and they've been really gracious and really, like, interested in our project. So right now that's what we're working from, is just different, you know, reimagined versions of the songs.
0: Okay, interesting. And what was the rehearsal process like for this show?
1: Oh, um, well, like I said, I started out one-on-one with uh, Brady Harris, the musical director. He and I would talk about, like, which key we would choose the song in, which instruments we would imagine, you know, once we fully brought the band in. Um, And that was a couple, three times a week we would meet up um, while the head writer, John Bernstein, was kind of going through and figuring out. So there was a lot of... um, We tossed out a lot of stuff, you know, um, and then kept kind of the skeleton, um, of, of our ideas. Um, and then I would say we rehearsed about three times a week, mm-hmm. um, three of, and then closer to time. It was four times a week, um, three hours each. Cause it's, it's also tricky to get, you know, they're all musicians. Um, first we have one guy that's more of a stand-up comic, um, out of it's four guys and me. So they already are gigging every other night in L.A., you know, and out of town. So so we wanted to, to streamline it and also get more bang for our buck with let's let's figure out how we can get these guys in here as, as much as we can. And,
0: yeah. Mm. Now, obviously, you've got the, one of the most important roles in the show playing Mindy McCready. How did you go about becoming her?
1: Oh... Really, it was through the research. Like, being the co-creator on the project has, like, I would imagine that's super helpful. Um, being being there from the start and finding out this information that I didn't know. And trying to get to, like, understand or imagine yourself and making those kind of life choices that she made and personal decisions. And just really, like, I, I keep saying the word obsessed, but being really fascinated by it and going, wow, so she was doing this success at the same time, but kind of fell in with these people. Like I'm trying to imagine what would Jennifer, what would I do? And she's, she's just a different person. Um, but I just, um, kind of fell, fell in love with her in the way that, um, I think she has such a big heart and so much, um, passion for the men in her life, which is what we focus on in the show. And passion for, and love for music from a young age. Um, I think I started to really realize that there were a lot of things we have in common. Um, so once you find some of the, those things, I think it becomes a little bit easier to imagine yourself. I guess the hardest part was like the the deeper depression and um, a lot of the places emotionally that that she went in her life that I haven't necessarily completely gone to (laughs) or based major, major life choices from that, that place of like anger or depression or whatever. That part was different, but it's still relatable, you know, it's still universal to have depression or to be disappointed by a boyfriend or fiance or, you know, you
0: know, a lot, a lot of things in musical theater are are relatable to actual life experiences, makes people better actors.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, what do you think are the key elements to make a musical successful?
1: Mm, I think (laughs) my first thing that that comes to mind is get them in and and out quick, quick, quick. Tell the story, feel the story, let the audience get it. But streamlining straight away, that's one of the best. Um, I think a relatable story, like we were just saying, a relatable story is important. Um, Finding the humanity, um, obviously is how you get the relatability, having really good songs, (laughs) (laughs) really good songs and really working your butt off to make sure that, that uh, they're balanced and you know, that it's a fun, a fun experience um, to hear those songs for the first time. Also, I mean, Especially if you're telling a very compelling, you know, somewhat sad story. Um, You really want to bring it, so to speak, with with the band and um, the musicians that you have doing it. So I think all those things come into play. I think if you create an atmosphere from the beginning of the night that the audience walks into this experience that was completely different from outside of the theater, outside of wherever they were just in their car, wherever they're coming from, their job, their kids, their fit, whatever. Um, I think that's super important. Those have been some of my favorite, um, shows ever that you walk into an environment and you're like, wow, I don't know what to expect. This is exciting.
0: Mm. So did that make choosing the venue even harder? Cause you wanted the right atmosphere when people walked in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very adamant about that and I'm glad that John agreed with me and was open to it. Um, but yeah, I think it was one of those things. It was synchronicity. It was available and open, and it's in. in actually, in my neighborhood, which Silver Lake is, is a pretty awesome space for um, as far as a community. And there's a lot of cool places to to walk. You can. It's very walkable. Um, a lot of cafes, restaurants, bars, um, and so it lends itself to like a, a full, like a fun night out. Um, yeah.
0: Well, what can audiences expect to see when coming to McCready, the musical?
1: Well, I think they can expect um, kind of, you know, let's have fun. We have a small bar there actually in the theatre, beer, wine, and we got, I chose to to do pickleback, (laughs) whiskey picklebacks, which is just a very southern drink of whiskey followed by a chaser of pickle juice. So you kind of, you know, you get to kind of hang out, listen to, you know, country music. The show starts and the band comes in and it kind of just takes you on a journey of uh, the real story or of a real person. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people don't know the story. A lot of people only know parts of her story. Um, So a lot of times I just I get the response from audience members of, wow, wow, I can't like that's fascinating i want to look up more about her you know um so it it truly is not to sound hokey but it's a journey Mm. that you're taking on yeah
0: so you're in la at the moment are there any future plans to tour the musical or try and take it to broadway
1: yeah that's what we're looking at right now and this week i have a, a few phone calls set up with some theaters in alabama and in nashville um florida Definitely East Coast. I, I mean, I would love, love to, to bring this to New York. Um, and I'm talking to a couple of people that I think are, they've already created some very successful shows. So I'm going to be talking to them this week, which I'm very excited about, to kind of bend their ear and, um, and see how they, how did they go about, you know, transferring a show that, you know, from, from state to state. You know, without actually seeing it, there is also like a huge Minnie McCready following in the UK. So I had like a president of her, like one of her fan clubs, reach out to me after we were interviewed in Rolling Stone, and oh, how are you going to come here? You have to come here. It's, it's interesting, like where there is different pockets of fans. I mean, they're huge fans still, you know, today. So, mm-hmm.
0: well, you know, yeah, so as you mm-hmm. said, you've got to be obsessed with something, and if people are obsessed enough with her music, they'll they'll find your show.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's so true.
0: Now for our listeners in LA, where can they get tickets or more details about the show?
1: MacReadyTheMusical.com is our website. So M-C-C-R-E-A-D-Y is how you spell it, MacReadyTheMusical.com. Goldstar.com, we have tickets, and com. So yeah, and that that's all of our info. You can also follow me on Twitter, um, which is Jennifer Blake and Instagram is jblakelala. Like we have like all the, you know, all the social media. We're pretty easy to find, I believe. So you're,
0: you're one up on me. I've never done Instagram. I have, I'm barely, I'm barely good at Twitter. (laughs) Um, so, so how would you describe the life of a musical theater performer?
1: Ooh, um, that would be a long sentence or a long conversation to have, but, Um, I I love it. It's the life for me. Um, I mean, obviously I don't just say musical theater, but that's my first love. Um, I also work in TV and film out here. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's what the first thing I think of is family. Like you kind of have a built in family with each cast. Um, and I mean, there's people I've connected with on projects that I worked on 20 years ago, you know, 15 years ago that we still talk pretty regularly. So, Um, so yeah, I think you just, it's not going to be your regular, uh, life, so to speak of maybe marriage babies, you know, necessarily, because there's definitely a lot of touring. There's a lot of moving around. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of rejection, you know, but, um, but I think if you stick with it, the cream, you know, rises to the top. (laughs)
0: So what would you say has been the highlight of your career so far?
1: Oh, well, right now, like right now, because it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. But I i mean, I've definitely had a lot of like really amazing experiences for sure. You know, I had a blast. I did the, a production of Hair in New York that has stayed with me to this day as being one of my favorite creative, you know, uh experiences because the director was just so immersed in it and again it had to do with like every day she would bring i think we were rehearsing at manhattan theater club in midtown and she would bring loads and loads of research material like and put it on the table and then talk about it And she's like take it home take anything home bring it back look at these pictures read these books um like really immerse yourself in it and that that was
0: that helps with the creative thoughts. process definitely
1: uh, it was just so cool to have somebody that's sort of like, you know, the director, the the teacher, the mother that, you know, that's uh, really into it herself. And when you have a when you're lucky enough to have a director that is that passionate about it, you can't help but like the whole company comes together and excited. So,
2: I mean, how much do
0: you think PR plays a role in musical theater? Because, I mean, with McCready, you've had a write up in Rolling Stone and I've seen various other articles around the place. So do you think that's helping sell the show?
1: Um, I think it definitely helps. And then right now, because I mean, being in Los Angeles doing a limited run, um, it's hard to gauge. It really is hard to gauge like how, you know, we had a few people opening night that do know Mindy and um, did know Mindy and her family. So that was interesting. And I think that they might have found out through Rolling Stone, but I'm not quite sure. Um, I do hang out with some of the audience afterwards, or I do kind of meet a few of them afterwards, but sometimes those are more like friends of mine that come to the show. Um, and then I don't know how some of them, unless they come out and tell me how they heard about the show. So I would be interested to see if there was a way to check percentages, you know, how did you hear about it? In what way did you hear about our show?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performing arts?
1: Oh, training. I would say train. Just train. It doesn't have to be a four-year conservatory. It doesn't have to be a thing. You can even go do a six-week workshop. Um, definitely do your research on, you know, what the students think. Talk to the students that go to that school or that, you know, that teacher. But train. And then just kind of just say yes to anything. Um, there's tons of, you know, student films. Um there's always something out there that you can be doing um that's a collaboration it might not pay a lot of times it doesn't pay <laughs> or it might pay but it's it's uh, a long drive from where you live or it's you know tricky but i i think the doing the doing is everything the sitting back and talking about it and, uh that's not really just just do it just go throw yourself into an uncomfortable situation <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for your wise words, and that's very true of the performing arts. Everything's essentially done for free. Well, until a point, anyway. And good luck with the rest of the MacReady season. Thank you so much, Benjamin. Thanks. That was my chat with Jennifer Blake, and you can find a link to MacReady the Musical's website in the show notes. So now, here's my interview with John Hewitt about his remake of Turkey Shoot, which has just come out on DVD and Blu-ray. Enjoy. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. Not at all. Now, who or what inspired you to become a director?
2: Mm, I guess, I mean, I grew up in inland Victoria in Australia, so, um, uh, in the, in, and I was like a teenager in the 70s, so the idea of becoming a filmmaker was pretty remote, but I did have dreams that maybe I'd like to make movies and, um... I think the two Australian films, Stone and The Man from Hong Kong, were the movies that made me realise that you could make, you know, interesting films in Australia. I saw both those films at the cinema in um, in Aubrey, I think within a few weeks of each other. Um, that's my memory of it anyhow. I saw Stone first. You, you know the movies I'm talking about?
0: I've heard of them. I don't think I've seen either of them.
2: Yeah, so so like, like Stone was... Um, Uh, About a bunch of bike uh, ex Vietnam vet uh, war veteran bikers in Sydney, you know, sort of tearing up the tearing up the city. And uh, the Man from Hong Kong was like a a a kung fu action movie. Both of them made in Australia. One directed by Sandy Harbour Stone, and Man from Hong Kong was actually directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith, who who went on to direct Turkey Shoot. But both those films seemed incredibly exciting. And they were also full of Australians and they were, they were Australian to me. They, they were full of recognisable human beings. Like most of the Aussie movies i watched or that were around for me at the time seemed to be full of characters who didn't really belong in real life, like Elvis Purple and, you know, Picnic and Hanging Rock types, you know, stuff mm. like that.
0: far um, Whereas
2: stuff... Well, yeah, yeah, you know, just uh, uh, stone seemed to be particularly stone seemed to be to come from real life. I grew up in in Wodonga, which was um very close to the Hume Weir Raceway, so it had a massive bike uh, culture, and uh, there was a a pretty notorious gang there called the Savages. Um, you know, they're like the Hell's Angels, and, you know, people like that, and. Um, I know, it just seemed to, it resonated for me as real. Well, it was also near an army base, so there were a lot of Vietnam veterans and no, I just thought it was an incredibly exciting film and it was Australian. So that's when I realised that, you know, movies could be made in Australia or were being made in Australia, that were the sort of movies that you'd want to watch mm. or somebody like me would want to watch. So I, I'd probably have to cite them as the real influences or the real things that made me realise you could be an Australian filmmaker.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear some Australian titles pop up in in inspirational. I suppose you know things that inspire people because often it's American films that um, people find inspiring, and it's uh, quite a blow <laughs> yeah, to the film uh, uh, industry.
2: I mean, I was obsessed with Bloody Awesome Wells and John Ford and all that shit, but the films that really made me think I could be a filmmaker were those two.
0: Mm, but that is good. Now we are here today to talk about Turkey Shoot, which is just about to be released on DVD and Blu-ray. When did you first see the original and at what point did you decide you wanted to reinvent it?
2: Well, I saw the original when it was first released in 1982, I think, in the cinema. Um, and, you know, I thought it was, you know, tremendous fun. And I think my memory of it was that it was sort of quite confronting at the time, um, particularly the violence. I think it was the first movie I ever saw where somebody. Was, you know, was shot to pieces, or had their head explode. You know, it was so the violence seemed quite um, graphic. I mean, this the, this was in the day when Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned in Australia, so I don't think I'd seen that yet. You know, there was no internet, there was no video, not really. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, so I saw it at the, at, 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 when it was first released in um, in a cinema in Melbourne. Somewhere I can't remember when. But yeah, remaking it, well, I mean, over the years after making a few movies, I, I, I got to know uh, uh, Tony Ghanayen, the producer of the original Turkish shoot, uh, and the re- reboot. Um, and I, I think I just kept pestering him anytime I saw him about, let me make one of your old movies. And and um, and then he eventually got himself into the position. Uh, he was living in America for many years and he came back to Australia and he, he had this idea to remake a number of his sort of classic back catalogue and the first one of those was Patrick that Mark Hartley directed uh, a couple of years ago um, and he said to me you know uh, and Belinda what do you want to make uh, Belinda McClory my wife we sort of pretty much work together from from the get go on, on anything that gets made by me so she's relatively important in the process mm. uh, and um I always loved Turkey Shoot, um, and looking at it in two thousand and fourteen or whatever, I, I mean it resonated as incredibly camp and overperformed and hysterical fun. Um, uh, so we decided that uh, we really wanted to remake it because it sort of had some political meat on its bones, and it felt like it could um, resonate as a as a contemporary movie, you know, like the the, the themes. Mm. Um, um, but we didn't really want to do a straight remake because, I don't know, I didn't really want to do a homage to Schlock or whatever because I'd already done one of them. Like the first film I ever made, Bloodlust, was this sort of, you know, dumb-assed, you know, pretty hokey and cheesy vampire movie and that was my hobo with a shotgun or whatever. So I, uh, we, we wanted to try and make an action film that could resonate as real and and vaguely serious, but in the context of it being like an exploitation film, and ticking all the boxes for that. Um, yeah, so that's that's why we, we, we did Turkey Shoot. Um, and we did it in the way that we, we did. I mean, I, I think well, there's a lot of fans have been a bit disappointed that it, it is relatively different to the original. Um, but for me, it's the same in spirit it's like it's rife with in-jokes and all that sort of thing, but it's the same in spirit. It's a sort of like the reboot is a, like a neo-exploitation film that has a lot of cheese and a lot of schlock in its aesthetic and a, a bit of sort of contemporary political meat on its bones, just like the real movie, uh, just like the original movie.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, you, you talk um, so that about... Was, that was the thinking. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about you know, I mean pestering the the producer for from quite a while back. So, how long was the process from conception to cinema and now DVD?
2: Oh, okay. Um, well, I think I had a meeting with Tony in two thousand and uh, let me think two thousand and twelve. I think um, early in two thousand and twelve. And he said, listen, you know, like, we're going to... There's a real opportunity to perhaps, re, you know, re, re, remake *Turkish Shoot, um, go away and write a script. So Blender and I did that. Um, and we developed that script over about 18 months. So it sort of came together relatively quickly.
0: Yeah, it's not um, bad timing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's say, let's say we started writing the script at the beginning of 2012, and... And we, the first day of the shoot was January 2, oh, sorry, February the 3rd, 2014.
0: That's so a pretty you know, fast turnaround.
2: 18 months. Yeah, fun. yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was the experience of the, that was the whole production process. I mean, we shot it in three weeks, which is in 15 days, which is incredibly quick. The sort of film it is. Mm-hmm. So it shot in 15 days in February 2014, and we delivered it. That is, the film was completed and showing on a cinema screen uh, before the end of June uh, 2000, uh, uh, 2014. Oh, wow. So the whole, f- yes, yeah, I mean, that's really, really quick. But it was all part of the, the structure of how, how tiny finance that we just had to pull our finger out and not. Around and really make it as quickly as we possibly could, yeah. like deliver it by June 30. You know, the usual financial year, sort of whatever. So that was the real challenge. I mean, it was. It's a bit of a blur, really. <laughs> well, you
0: That's got the there. I mean, film. it's it's impressive.
2: I felt like I was I was making like B movies in Hollywood in the 30s. You know, where they made about 20 films a year. <laughs> um, yeah, no, filmmakers I mean. Gee, yeah. it was it was it was a blur. it mm, would have but been it was fun. It was fun. And you know, I mean I, I always think that, you know, like making a film is much better than not making it. And we did have a point there where it was like like well, do you wanna do it or do you shall we forget about it? Um because we have all these things that seem to be impossible, like the timeline. Suddenly a, a bunch of money fell away right at the last moment, so it you know, we had to make it even quicker, stuff like that.
0: And, yeah. You know, Welcome I'm, to the Australian film industry.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's really the film industry, any, anywhere, and and you know, as it seemed to to be the the experience of the original movie as well. Like I know Brian Trenchard-Smith went through a similar experience making the first turkey shoot. So it all seemed to be part of the I don't know the the geist of of of. of of the movie itself, um, it, it just seemed to make sense. And, yeah, I was up for anything, and, um, and, and, but really, you know, Tony took a leap of faith, you know, because everybody else was saying, you're insane, it can't be done, there's not enough money, and you've got no time. and So Tony looked me in the eye and said, you reckon you can do it? And I said, yeah, yeah, we can do it. And, uh, yeah, so he pulled the trigger on it and off we went. Um, so, I mean, that's the sort of producer he is, he's fearless if he has confidence in you, you know. Um, and, yeah, I'd already made a couple of films in a flaky way. So, um, you know, like, I, I think he felt that I'd already pulled it off a few t- times earlier on in, in, in films that I'd made, so perhaps I could do it again. But I, I've got to say, this really was the, the fastest, <laughs> sort of most intense shoot I've ever had. <laughs> so, but it was fun. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It was fun now. Uh, looking back, it was fun. At the time, it was pretty intense.
0: Well, <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would have been. Now, uh, we have mentioned the original cult classic. And, um, I mean, that's even a, a, f- a bonus feature on the DVD. Do you think fans of the original feature can appreciate this film as well?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, on the, um, on the Blu-ray, um, I think Severin, a company in the US, had just paid for a brand-new HD 4K Master taken from the original negative of the original movie, the 1980 Turkey Shoot by Brian Trenchard-Smith, and Smith. And, um, and so Tony had that. Tony Ganane had that, and when we are talking about you know releasing the film on DVD and Blu-ray, I mean the Blu-ray gave us the opportunity to put a bit more onto the disc, and we I don't know I think I, mean, I think I had the idea to say what are we able to release the original as well. And Tony was cool with that. So, yeah, we've been able to put uh, yeah, the most beautiful version of the original on the on the Blu-ray of the reboot. So, yeah, I guess it'll give people an opportunity to, if they want to, to compare and contrast the movies and maybe look at the original and go, yeah, what an awesome film that is, and look at the reboot and go yeah they, you know, what a piece of shit it is oh, I'm sure they won't uh, think that but, but they'll be able to compare and contrast the two, two movies mm. and, and perhaps um, uh, you know, see the sort of in jokes and little references we make in the, in the reboot and how they relate back to the original
0: well, I'm sure people would love to do that yeah. now, now you also co-wrote the script for this so how much of yeah. the film changed from what you initially conceived and wrote to what you directed for the screen um
2: I mean, the, the film, yeah, like a, a couple of weeks before we went into production, uh, we uh, a little bit of the financing b- became unavailable. So Blinder and I did a very quick rewrite of the script and we exercised a lot of extra- well, uh, characters that we thought were extr- extraneous. We went through a sort of a script development process where there was a little bit of intervention into the script. Um, Belinda and I always wanted to make this primal, basic sort of forward-moving action movie. But during development, we ended up having a bit of character development here and a bit of this and that there. And we ended up having a bunch of of extra characters, like generals in a war room and all this sort of thing. Um, And so we just exercised all of that and went back to the basic script that we had right from the get-go pretty much so that wasn't really a problem Um, and then then in the shoot um, um, we there was a bunch of stuff that we literally couldn't do because A we didn't have the budget uh, uh, B we didn't have the time and C we possibly didn't have the production logistic there that enabled me to 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 go and do it. I mean, Turkey Shoot was a very sort of straight up and down, uh, sort of production, um, with a bit of with a circus of people, and it wasn't really a run and gun sort of, not really a run and gun guerrilla film where I I could, I could have just um got out in the streets and shot the shit out of uh, out of the film. So um, yeah um, probably probably about. We shot about seventy five percent of the script, I reckon. <laughs> um, and perhaps you can feel that as we come towards the end of the movie, it, it appears a bit sort of um, like we're sort of pulling it out of the air. But we always had this our aesthetic, and and certainly my my position to the finances and so on is that you know we're never going to be able to afford a lot of the stuff that's in the movie, like you know car chases down freeways and. Blackhawk helicopters dumping soldiers onto roofs and so on, but we had this aesthetic where we could use stock and found footage to introduce that into the movie, um, through the game show cameras and all that sort of stuff, and 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 yeah, so a lot of the film was was. was found that way and perhaps a few holes were plugged as well and, and we are able to save save our bacon a little by having a bit more of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And you got to keep the film's but integrity. I, guess,
2: I haven't actually done it, but I reckon I the rest was sort of found and, and stock type um, and stuff, which is cool.
0: It is, most certainly. Now, uh, as you... I mean,
2: I had to remind myself that we didn't have a helicopter on the movie a couple of times in post. Yeah, because for me it's relatively seamless, but... um. It's like a helicopter didn't come
0: anywhere near this movie. <laughs> now, uh, you did, as I said, you co-wrote this film. So do you think that today, to be a good director, you have to be able to write as well? No, I don't think so. Um, um,
2: I, I just have always written the films that I've made or, oh, oh, and written them or co-written, and mainly with Belinda, my wife, we write together. It's just a lot, easy, it's a lot easier and it's a lot more fun to write with somebody um, rather than try and do it yourself. I've done it by myself a few times and it's no fun. You know, it's hard work. Whereas writing with somebody else, I don't know, it just gets done quicker and it gets done in a much more exciting way and, and, and you end up with something that's much better, I think, um, having two voices sort of there. And, you know, Belinda and and my voice are relatively disparate. I mean, she comes from a, a character and an actor position and an emotional position, and I I come from a sort of an abbreviated action, you know, let's not... You know, let's just get it on the page sort of thing. And between the two of us, we seem to get it done. Uh, but I think there's plenty of directors who... Uh, ..out there who don't write their own stuff, I think. I mean, just being a... Directing the film, you're always, always are vaguely involved in the writing anyhow, uh, by making comments and you know doing quick rewrites yourself that never you never get credited for and all that sort of stuff. And then in the in the edit suite, like rewriting the film in the edit suite as well. I've done a little bit of that. I do a lot of that actually. You're, you're trying to find the movie in the edit. You know, jettisoning stuff, rearranging scenes you know, putting dialogue in a different spot where it means something else. That's all part of the sort of interest and fun of the, of making a movie. Um, so, yeah, I guess directors are always involved in the writing, even though they're not credited, but writing it from the ground up, yeah you know, there's plenty, pl- plenty of great directors who don't do that.
0: All right. Well, um, if you had one minute to sell Turkey Shoot to someone who'd never heard of it before, how would you do it?
2: I'd say it's a um, full-on neo-exploitation film made with a sense of fun and uh, with a little bit of political meat on its bones, but it doesn't try and shove its message down your throat. It's contemporary and fast-moving, and it makes, I think, some salient points about where we are as a society, but also has a a sense of... um, Cheesy entertainment, and the main thing you've got to keep in your mind is that it's called Turkey Shoot, not Citizen Kane. So that's the sort of movie you're, you're gonna get.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where can people get a hold of Turkey Shoot?
2: Oh, look, I reckon it's um, it's obviously on all VOD platforms, you know, iTunes and uh, you know, uh, big pond movies and all those sorts of things, as well as you know, JV Hi Fi and anywhere where you can buy a DVD or a Blu ray, and hopefully, it's in a lot of those booths that you see in the supermarkets as well, where you can rent the things. Uh, it'll definitely be in there, so that, that's the way to see
0: it. Lots of places for people to get hold of it,
2: yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the film industry? Um, I
2: recommend. My advice is that it's it's sensible not to think that you're going to have a career and, you know, uh, you should just try and make what you want to make um, and it's easier now than it's ever been to do that. But, I'm, uh, I mean, I couldn't give anybody career advice because I've never had a career in the film industry. Pretty much all the films I've made I've had to sort of wheel into existence up to a point. I've been lucky a couple of times, but um, you know, a lot of those films um, I didn't get paid to make, and uh, I perhaps invested a lot of my own money in them as well. So I don't know, I don't know. Like, but if you want to make movies, you can do it. Australia is a great place to make films, and there's a lot of really talented people and enthusiastic people, and, and you know, it's still possible to get out on the streets and shoot some stuff without like 40 different um, uh, individuals from different walks of society sort of pouncing on you and going that's my footpath give me 50 bucks or where's your permit or uh, what are you doing you know stuff like that yeah uh, you, you, you just don't don't expect to get have a career this would be my advice I don't know how you have a career as a filmmaker <laughs> you know uh, don't give up your day job.
0: It's, well, it's you know, certainly a tough industry to hold any job in. <laughs>
2: yeah, but you know, um, it's worth it though. Like, I don't know, if you're if you're into making movies, it's it's a great feeling to 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 make anything, and it's a great privilege as well, particularly in Australia to make anything. Just being in production is an incredible privilege. Mm,
0: it certainly is. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And people can get Turkey Shoot out on their DVD or on streaming services now. That was my chat with Australian director John Hewitt. And a link to where you can buy Turkey Shoot on DVD and Blu-ray is in the show notes. Now, over the past month, I've had the opportunity to check out some fantastic film releases. Now, first up was the latest Marvel film, Ant Man. Now, this highly enjoyable Marvel movie offering is a fantastic caper movie. It's better than Guardians of the Galaxy, but not quite as strong as Avengers Age of Ultron. And the performances from Michael Douglas and Paul Rudd are fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed that one. So I gave it 3.5 stars, and that's in cinemas now. The next film I saw, thanks to 20th Century Fox, was Paper Towns. Now, this movie was almost too real. Honestly, if I wanted to watch such a sad story unravel, I could have read the newspaper. Now, it does have some good performances, but it, it does feel a little bit too real, and I only gave that one 3 stars, and that's also in cinemas now. The next film I had the opportunity to check out was Trainwreck. Now, Amy Schumer is a genius, and this edgy, edgy comedy does prove that. Uh, that opens on August the 6th, and I gave that on 4.5 stars, and uh, and my full reviews, as always, are on the website, under the Movie review section. And more recently, I had the opportunity to check out Mr. Holmes. Now, this film didn't need a master sleuth to let you know how terrible it was. Now, it could have been so good. I mean, Ian the is a superb actor, and in his younger years, could have easily portrayed Holmes. But now, it just didn't quite work. Um, and I can only give that one point five stars, and that released on Thursday. Now, the latest film I've had the opportunity to check out is Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, thanks to Paramount Pictures. Now, the latest instalment in the Mission Impossible franchise delights in every way. I mean, there are very few franchises that get better with age, but this is certainly one of them. Ghost Protocol was fantastic, unlike the first three films, and this one is even better. I gave that on four stars, and um, it opens on Thursday the 30th in Australia, and Friday the 31st in America. So that one is coming out very shortly, or already out, depending on where you are in the world. And as I said, my four reviews are always online. Now, thanks to Madman Entertainment, I've had a couple more releases to check out. Uh, firstly, the Are You Being Served movie from their Britannia collection. Now, I absolutely uh, love the TV show Are You Being Served, and it does translate very well to film. Uh, it does have a tendency to reuse some of the jokes from the television series, but not in a way that's too annoying. So I, uh, I love that uh, DVD, and that's out very shortly from Madman Entertainment. And another Madman Entertainment release I've had the opportunity to check out is Murder She Wrote Season 5. Uh, the stories do keep getting better. The the moving of them, central character, away from Cabot Cove, does help, I suppose, reinvent the series. And giving uh, Endola Lansbury's character, Jessica Fletcher, an actual job certainly helps in, I suppose, revitalising the series. And uh, it does get better from there. And I will have reviews of the next couple of seasons of that show and some more Madman DVDs next month. And I will also have some Rojo products to review by then. So, I would like to thank all of our supporters, Madman Entertainment, Rojo Entertainment, Palace Nova Cinemas, and Mad Zombie Collectibles. All their details are in the show notes of this podcast and on the website, PreachersPodcast.net. Don't forget to follow the show over on Twitter at PreachersPodcast and like the Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash PreachersPodcast. I've been your host, Benjamin Mayer McKay, and I'll be back next month with some more exciting interviews. See you then. <laughs>